Hello, I'm Clay Wallace, and I'd like to invite you on a tour of my hometown. Welcome to Any Old Place, a podcast of the Capital City Museum, where we explore unique places in Frankfort, Kentucky, from the past and through the present. Today, I'm in the parking lot outside a building that holds some of my earliest memories. Like last episode, the singing bridge hums in the background as we stand close to the intersection of St. Clair and Wapping Street. This time, though, we're a bit closer to the river, just behind the building which I remember as the old Paul Sawyer Public Library. I spent a lot of time here as a kid. My sisters and I would participate in summer reading programs and children's events held throughout the year. I remember the excitement of my first library card, bright orange, decorated with a picture of the large arched window on the front of the building. I remember the joy of checking out books and of playing educational games on the computers and of ducking under the desk in the children's area to greet the huge fluffy bunny that lived on the second floor. The library moved out of this building when I was in middle school, becoming the old Paul Sawyer Public Library building. But it's been other old buildings as well, the old post office and the old federal courthouse building. I spoke with retired city historian Russ Hatter to get an overview of 305 Wapping Street's various incarnations. He says that land was originally the property of Humphrey Marshall before General James Wilkinson, Frankfurt's founder, bought it. And then he and his wife Nancy sold the property to Andrew Holmes. And then Wilkinson went on to elsewhere in his day. But uh, they, uh, that was in 1793. And then in the 1800s, uh, the property was sold to become a ferry. So they would have a ferry at the end of that spot there, uh, which crossed uh, to the other side of South Frankfurt. And then at that spot between St. Clair and the Singing Bridge, which was not there at the time, but at that spot was uh, the ferry for a time, and then it became a sawmill. And Frankfurt had about nine sawmills at this time. They would bring the logs down the river from Beattyville and other places upriver, float them down to Frankfurt, and then these nine sawmills would cut up the trees into planks and boards. and In fact, we had a section down the river a little bit farther past Leestown where they made steamboats. And we've had boats that went all the way down the Kentucky River to the Ohio, down to Mississippi and to the Gulf, and all the way to England. A lot of the homes in London were built out of Kentucky timber that was brought by way of steamboats made in, in Kentucky, right here in Frankfurt. The um, family of the Dudleys, uh, Jephthah Dudley and Peter Dudley, they were very prominent uh, uh, people here in our community, and um, they owned the property. And at the death of her husband, um, Mary Hendricks, who was a swigert, uh, she inherited the old custom house property, which what would become. And this was in 1881 when she inherited that. Well, they got a deal from President Chester A. Arthur in 1882. He 
you know, set up $100,000 to build the federal courthouse and post office at that site. Unfortunately, they were going to have to tear down the old Swigert's mill, and uh, people hated to see it go. That's what progress does, you know. Anytime you tear something down, somebody's going to be upset about it. But um, he signs the appropriation for $100,000, and then they begin to start looking for a site for the building. Of course, we know where they wound up because the building's there now. But they looked over in South Frankfurt at the end of where um, City Hall is now. There used to be a house. It's called the Hannah House. And it faced on the south side of 2nd Street, looking down to what is now the Singing Bridge to where you can see, at that time, you could actually see the old Capitol. It's a good spot. But they didn't want to tear that house down. So it got torn down later for our present city hall. Another spot they looked at was over in South Frankfurt, another some property over there. At this time in the 1880s, there wasn't much in South Frankfurt at all. Uh, a lot of farms were over there. There were a lot of creeks and bridges and little things like that. Frank Frankfurt was quite different in the 1880s. Uh, as far as the land was concerned, terrain and everything. So the committee that did the search for the property were famous fellows here in our community. Uh, Daniel W. Lindsay, he was a star during the Civil War, a general, uh, the adjutant general, rather, of the state of Kentucky after the Civil War, and he was quite prominent, a lawyer, an attorney. And then Colonel S.I.M. Major, who lived on the corner of uh, where the meeting house is today, on the corner of Ann Street and Miro Street. That would be on the uh, southeast side of that corner. He was one of those. And another fellow was Dr. R.J. Hatchett. So... They get the committee, they get the site, they spend the money for it. Uh, Jane and Mary Swigert Hendrick and James Saffel, the people that owned those properties, sold. Uh, Saffel got $10,400 for his sawmill, and the lady, Mrs. Swigert, got about $6,000. And then they proceeded to get an architect out of Danville, his name was David Asbury Murphy, and he was a pretty prominent architect at that time in the early 1880s. And <clears throat> it was interesting when they started tearing down the sawmill and making preparations to construct the building, it kind of ticked off a lot of the people of Frankfurt because this fellow from Danville, instead of taking, buying lumber from the local sawmills, he got the lumber for the interior of the building from Cincinnati. He also got the stone for the building from um, Indiana, Indiana Bedford Stone. So here was all this work being done in our community, but none of the locals were getting any part of the pie, so to speak. And it, it upset a lot of people. 
In fact, they were originally going to make it a Queen Anne-style building, which would have been far different from what it is today. And uh, basically, the people of the town got upset, said, let's, let's not do that. What little bit they had started in construction of the building, it, it kind of turned a different color after it was painted and so forth. And it, it just didn't satisfy anybody. So eventually, they fired the architect and got a replacement. A fellow by the name of Grubbs took over. And then nothing happened. The building sat there half-built for about a year, and nothing was done about it at all. And there again, the local people were already angry for the materials being purchased from out of town, and then they were mad because it was just sitting there and nothing happening. So finally, they get the building completed in 1883. Um, it, it was amazing. They, they didn't have the dedication until, um, I guess it was 1884, before they actually got the dedication of the building done. And when they did, they originally scheduled to have it in January, but it was too cold. So they did it in February, and then poured down rain. And it was, it, you talk about raining on a parade, that's what happened. They had a big parade, and the rain kind of messed things up, but they got it taken care of. I believe it was February the 4th when they laid the cornerstone, and they had a lot of festivities going on for that event. It was another three years before the building finally opened in 1887. Russell Rodman was the postmaster, and the basement and the first floor was for the post office, the second floor and the third floor were for federal courthouse location and for offices and everything. And, of course, that tower, the beautiful spire that goes up, it's about 60 feet high, and it's uh, just a lovely, delightful building to see today. In 1910, an addition was made to the building because the post office needed more space to operate. You have to understand this is in the age of horse and buggy. So mail delivery was on little wagons and, and horses, and you had to have a place for them to be stationed on the property. So that's why they extended the building and made it bigger, gave more room for the federal offices as well as for the post office. And then they uh, had some more work done on the building, I guess it was finished about 1911 to when they added that rear wing that you can see today. 1937, moving up to a year that is in memory for the flood that we had that actually devastated the Frankfurt Penitentiary, now that year we had a fire at the post office and it burned up a lot of the records and information and they did more work uh, shortly after that, in 1939, uh, to rebuild where the fire was and to replace it, make renovations. Uh, then in 1960, we'll move up into more closer times, they decided that they were going to move the post office 
to another location. And once again, they had a committee, and the committee said, let's put it here on Main Street. No, let's put it over here on Mirror, blah, blah, blah. So they wound up putting it at the end of Ann Street, right up against the quarry that is there. That building, near the end of Ann Street at the intersection of Miro, Holmes, and High Street, began operating as the post office in the mid-60s. Uh, that didn't last too long because they were uh, looking for more space and room, and they came out to this area here on in, off of Wilkinson Boulevard later. Uh, in 1965, the government federal government approved a lease to create the library board and have them use the, the building itself. So the Woman's Club building, that's where the library had been, which was just located on the corner of, of um, it would be the, south, the northwest corner of Washington Street and Wapping was where the Women's Club building is even today, that was a library. And so they made arrangements to put the library in, in 1965 is when it became the Paul Sawyer Library. Uh, Bob Rowe, who was a local uh, artist here in town, and he, he felt that they should recognize Paul Sawyer. Paul Sawyer was an American Impressionist painter who spent the majority of his life in Frankfurt. We'll speak about him more later, but he's most well-known for his landscapes along the Kentucky River, making his namesake fitting for the library's location. The new federal building, the new courthouse, was located down on Broadway, and it was the John C. Watts Federal Building. In order to build the new federal courthouse down there, they took away and destroyed some beautiful homes on Madison Street. Madison was located adjacent to the uh, left of the old Capitol building, and it was there uh, entering onto to Broadway. That would be the houses of the famous judge, Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan, and then next door was the Solomon P. Sharp House, where a murder occurred in 1825. Sharp was killed. It was such a. It was sort of like the O.J. Simpson trial of the century. Everybody in the country was talking about Frankfort, Kentucky, and the death of this politician, murdered by this this man, Jeroboam Beecham, and uh, Edgar Allan Poe. He used this murder, 1825, from Frankfort in one of his plays that he wrote. You can hear all about the sharp murder and trial in Season 3, Episode 1 of Kentucky Deceased, our sister podcast hosted by museum and historic site supervisor Eleanor Haskin-Wagner. Back to more on the library. Paul Sawyer, of course, the public library lasted until the early 2000s when the new location uh, came up. I've had a lot of... Uh, uh, connections to the library when it was located in the old federal post office building. Um, in fact, my wife, Karen, worked there as a teenager in high school at the, the, the library. Years later, in the 90s, the theater group Pegasus Players that I was involved with 
we did a lot of plays in the courtroom, the old courtroom. Uh, it was just a wonderful place to to be inside. These huge ceilings, and we did uh, the Lion in Winter. Uh, folks may remember that um, movie and everything with Peter Ustinov. That was just one of the plays. One of the plays we did at the federal courthouse setting was uh, The Mousetrap by Agatha Christie. And we did it 10 days in a row. We didn't have it on just weekends. We did it 10 days in a row. And City Commissioner Pat Layton wanted to see the play mainly because Judge uh, Bill Graham was in the play. And a lot of people wanted to come and see the judge in action in the play. And so we were sold out. And Pat Layton came and couldn't get in the building, a city commissioner. So she came back the next night about an hour early to make sure she got her ticket. And uh, that was kind of interesting. But it was a lot of fun. A lot of, a lot of memories are tied into that building. We used the basement of the library, the old federal building, to store our flats and our our tools and things related to creating the plays. And at one point in taking uh, some lumber up the stairs, we knocked out a window and we had to replace that. But a lot of memories there. So many people have have used that building. Of course, the city wound up um, uh, selling it to Kentucky State University at one point, and that's pretty much the history of the building. Can you tell me a little bit about Paul Sawyer, the person, the significance of him being named, having the having the library named after him? Paul Sawyer was born in 1865, and so he as you probably know and many of our listeners know, that um, many of the scenes, the early scenes of Frankfurt on the streets downtown or in South Frankfurt and out on Elkhorn Creek and other places in the county and later other places in Kentucky off the Kentucky River, Paul wound up um, uh, painting these with his watercolors and sometimes he used oil he was uh, very good at what he did, and he, of course, had an interesting love story and everything. He dated this girl, Mamie Bull, for about 20 years or so before they broke up. But anyway, he was a marvelous artist. And Bob Rowe, who worked for the state at that time uh, in 1960s, he, he felt like Paul Sawyer, the artist, ought to have some recognition. So that's how it got its name. Now, years later, I found out through the work I did with the city of Frankfurt, the Capital City Museum, Lillian Lindsay. She is the lady that really started the library back in the early 1900s. And... and uh, we had a lady come into the museum with a collection of documents and photographs. And if you go to the current location of the, the library at uh, Washington and Wapping 
and you go into the Lillian Lindsay little shop that they have there where they sell books, you'll see her picture. Well, that picture came from this woman that brought in a collection of documents and materials. I went ahead and scanned everything that she had because she was trying to sell it and try to make money off of it. So anyway, that's just a little side issue there that you'll come across when you come visit the library. And um, the federal courthouse, the new one, the John C. Watts building, was the timeline matches up with the Fountain Plaza project. Was it part of the Capitol Plaza project or was it uh, just something that they were clearing that area out anyway? No, actually it wasn't. Uh, it, It came after the development of Fountain Place and the buildings down there in that section. We had a lot of places that they had wanted to put it. There's a spot on Clinton Street where Cable 10 used to be located, uh, Clinton and St. Clair, uh, that they thought were going to build the, the new federal courthouse there, but it didn't happen. And then um, you mentioned in 1793 that's when that that spot was for uh, ferry passage back and forth across the river. Was that before there were any bridges in Frankfurt? Right. There were no bridges then. You had a ferry that went from Ann Street uh, over to South Frankfurt. You had a ferry at the end of Wilkinson Street that Wilkinson himself started that went to what we know of as 2nd Street. There was another ferry at the end of Broadway that took you across to uh, what is Bell Point and everything over there. So we the use of ferries was very important. And when they built the first covered bridge, uh, it was in the 1840s, uh, it fell. It, it didn't last and people were killed in, in it. But they had to reconstruct that, that covered bridge several times and then they would use Uh, ferry boats to get people across back during those days. And then uh, I guess the last question I have is uh, a curiosity. I remember I've spoken to you in the past and you mentioned that Frankfurt wasn't constitutionally uh, recognized as the capital of Kentucky until, was it like 1900? 1899. 1899. So they built the federal courthouse building, there w- there was national recognition of Frankfurt as the capital before Kentucky constitutionally recognized Frankfurt as the capital? Oh, yes. Uh, when, we, when we first became the capital in 1792 and they chose our town, uh, it was kind of put up for bids. Uh, the state of Kentucky was concerned if we make it Louisville, people are going to be mad in Lexington. Ours were our two biggest cities at the time. And so they decided to create good politicians, you know, to come up with a committee to decide where the site would be. So Andrew Holmes, that's who Home Street is named for. Andrew Holmes came up with the idea of giving $3,000 in specie, that was the money they were using at that time. He went around the community and collected money, 
got $3,000. He got building supplies. He got panes of glass. He got um, nails, buckets of nails, and all kinds of things. And then the city of Frankfurt itself agreed to help pay for the construction of our first capital. Well, it burned down. And then there was a talk of, hey, let's move the capital to Louisville. Henry Clay said, no, no, we want to move it to Lexington, Kentucky. And so because of Henry Clay's influence, he didn't get very many votes in Frankfurt every time he would run for any particular office. And uh, it was kind of funny. That's where the Assembly Ball Club came from. The fact that we weren't in the Constitution as the capital of Kentucky, they had to, every session of the legislature, come up with a way to wine and dine all the legislators. Now, this is back, you know, when the... the early 1800s we're talking about. The first two main Capitol buildings burned down. And then the present building that we have was built about 1827 to 1830 when it was constructed. And we still have it with us today, thank goodness. But the Assembly Ball Club, would every year that the legislature would meet, they would wine and dine the the gentlemen, and there weren't any women in those days for those positions. And you have to understand transportation. Henry Clay just lived 25 miles away in Lexington at Ashland, his home. But he would stay in Frankfurt at the Big Bill Johnson's house, which is located on the northeast corner of Washington and Main Street. And that's where he would stay with the friend that he knew that lived there at the time. So transportation, this is primarily before railroads. So to get to here for the legislature meetings, you would have to have a, you know, people coming from western Kentucky and eastern Kentucky and it was it took a while. So we had all these hotels that were built here to accommodate the legislature. If it wasn't for the state government being in Frankfurt, our town would be probably about the size of Owenton or, or Lawrenceburg, uh, any of those smaller Kentucky River towns. So we are very thankful to have state government here. We're the only city that has state government, county government, and city government. And it's been good for Frankfurt. From the 18th century onward, this little pin on Frankfurt's map has been the very spot which connects it to the wider world through law, letters, and literature. I wanted to learn more about its time as a library, so I got in touch with Mark Overstreet, a member of the library board. He's lived in Frankfurt since 1980, when he moved here from Lexington to practice law. I asked him how he first got involved with the library. The short story is, uh, upon moving to Frankfurt, I was looking for the library and stumbled on it uh, uh, one afternoon uh, during my lunch break uh, when I went around the corner and went in and looked around and got a card and started uh, checking out books. And uh, in those days, the library was um, not very well funded. And it used a lot of uh, volunteers to uh, 
to help with uh, the non-library uh, activities such as checking in books, reshelving books, and, and things like that. So in uh, after being a patron for 10 years, in January 1992, I became a, vo- a circulation volunteer at the library in, in, the, in the old building and the federal uh, courthouse and post office building. And uh, so that was 92, and uh, 31 years later, I'm still volunteering as a circulation clerk. But that's how I became uh, involved with the library. And then uh, a couple years later, in 1994, I was invited to join the board. And so what does – can you describe both of those roles? Can you describe your role – as a volunteer circulation clerk and also your role as uh, someone who serves on the board. Sure. So, uh, and the role as a uh, circulation clerk uh, changed um, immeasurably and to the better with the advent of technology or library technology, adoption of uh, computer technology by the library. So when I started, we were in the, uh, uh, the old building and... None of the records were uh, online. So what would happen is somebody would return a book. In the back of the book, there was a uh, due date card. And then you would – and then you had boxes of the cards that were in – that were in the books when they were on the shelves. And the way books were checked out is the – clerk would take the uh, card out of the back of the book and then uh, your library card was embossed with your name and your library number and both the library card and the uh, the patron's library card and the card in the back of the book were placed in a machine and the uh, there was uh, the machine essentially stamped your name and library card number on the card in the back of the book. Those cards were filed alphabetically, so you know there may be three thousand books checked out at any one time. And what you would do is you would take the card out, see what what the due date was, rifle through it, and the cards were in alphabetical order by book title find the corresponding card, put it back in the book, and then put put it on the book cart to be reshelved. Well, that was very time-consuming, extraordinarily time-consuming. So you would, uh, when you went into the library, the first thing you saw was the circulation desk, and there would be a huge stack of books that were backed up to be processed. And then there would be carts of books that had not yet to be processed. So uh, one of the reasons our library doesn't have fines is that uh, they were so far behind in checking in books that they never could keep up with the fines uh, to do it. But that's essentially what you would do uh, in uh, in checking out in checking back in books. Mr. Overstreet says that system was updated in the mid '90s when the library closed for several weeks to digitize their entire catalog. All of the books were returned to the library over time, 
and they were their records were digitized, put on a computer, and the barcode was put on the book. So at that point, and we were s- still in the old library at uh, at that point, we the book would come and you would scan the barcode, and that would automatically check it in, and that that was much easier, and we were able to catch up and keep caught up. Now. Uh, the library books have both a barcode, and which is just a backup, and an uh, RFID tag, which is like they have in stores for shoplifting purposes. And But that RFID tag has all the information about the book on that tag. And so what you do when a book comes in is you place it on the, on the pad, and that automatically checks it in. And then you take uh, you take the books and you put them on the sorting shelves. And then if you have time, uh, I um, and uh, I think I'm the only circulation li- uh, volunteer left. But what I do is I'll I'll reshelve the new books and whatnot. A trustee is completely different. So they're the the uh, the board of trustees. Um, consists of 10 members. Uh, five of the members are on the voting board. And the voting board is responsible for the finances of the library, is responsible for the library policies, and has a single employee, which is the uh, director of the library. That's Gene Rourke now. Uh, and um, we've always met... Uh, since I've been on the board, the second Tuesday of each month, uh, and uh, you know what we cover are things like uh, we set the tax rate, the ad valorem tax rate, because the library is about 99.5% funded through property taxes. The library director proposes a budget. We review it, make whatever changes we think are appropriate, and then we approve the budget. Uh, we make sure each month we review expenditures, make sure everything is is uh, being properly expended. We've never had a problem with things not being properly expended, but that's that's one of our duties. Uh, we do things like look at salaries and uh, decide what uh, not necessarily individual salaries are going to be, although we do approve the individual salaries, but – in the past, for example, we've addressed issues like um, our, you know, our 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 salaries for circulation clerks competitive, and then we make adjustments and things like that. So that's essentially what those two jobs involve. Is there any when there are new projects, or like for instance, when um, the new computer system was initiated? Yeah. Is that something that the board votes and decides on and? Great question. So, absolutely, any sort of uh, the the director has um, once the budget is established, then the director has the uh, authority to 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 make purchases or or, or to do things like that, um, as long as he or she stays within his or her budget. But having said that, uh, the cost of automating uh, the circulation system was of, was of, you know was so great, and then the fact that the library was going to be shut for six to eight weeks, 
that went before the board. Uh, the director at that time was Rita Douthit. And, you know, she made the proposal. She explained the benefits uh, of automation, uh, and uh, the board discussed it, and we approved it. But, yes, that's exactly right. Is the um, Are there any projects that you've been especially proud of that you had a hand in in your time on the board? Certainly. So <clears throat> the old uh, – Courthouse, post office and courthouse, a wonderful building. It, it's deeply tied to the history of Frankfurt. Uh, uh, and it, you know, it's actually a very attractive building. But it wasn't made to be a library. It wasn't made to be a library for two purposes, for two principal, three principal reasons, I guess. Uh, number one, uh, its layout was not, it has a lot of space in it. But its layout was not really conducive to what you want a library to be. So uh, it was the space was all chopped up by um, walls that could not, you know, load-bearing walls that could not be moved, <laughs> and it was very inefficient use of the space. Um, secondly, uh, because it is an older building with uh, – higher um, ceilings. Uh, it was not um, – it was pretty expensive to maintain and to operate. And then um, I say three and now more I think about it. There were four. The third problem was it's in the floodplain. And uh, twice, once while I was on – while I was a volunteer and on the board – but twice since 1980, the library flooded. Uh, the first time, I'm pretty sure, was in the like 84, somewhere around then. And uh, the water from the Kentucky River, because it's right there on the banks of the Kentucky River, uh, got up to the top step of that of the stairs leading from the first floor to the basement, uh, and barely stopped there. Uh, but that necessitated uh, volunteers uh, from the community, and there were a lot of great people who helped, coming in and moving the books from the lower shelves on the first floor to get them out of the way in case the floodwaters continued to rise. Uh, so, And then it flooded again, and um, it, it it and it flooded a second time, but it didn't it didn't get up that high. But still, the books had to be moved because you don't know how high it's 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 going to get. So the flooding was an issue, and finally, um, the fourth reason is it was built to be a post office and a courthouse. It wasn't built to be a library. Libraries hold books. Books. Are heavy. They have a lot of weight in a very compact space. And we got to the point where we couldn't. So we had the first floor of the library uh, had um, had the mat, you know, had some public rooms and whatnot and had bookshelves and the circulation desk. The second floor, about a third of it, third to half of it was devoted to the children's space. But we couldn't – but we were running out of space for books. and But we couldn't add any bookshelves to the library because it, uh, 
it had, the building itself had physically reached its load bearing capacity, and it could and we couldn't add, uh, you know, any meaning meaningful number of of books uh, because the building wouldn't hold it. That, despite the fact that the half of the second floor was essentially open and all of the third floor was unused, but so we ran out of space. So that the, that's a long-winded way of explaining we needed to look at um, a new library and library building. And so I was president of the board at the time, and I, uh, with assistance from other board members, we uh, started a process. It started in uh, 2003 uh, where we started looking at the need for a new library, did a lot of work, and eventually wound up building the, the new library building. So how does the new library building, because uh, it's also right next to the Kentucky River. It is. How does it accommodate, how does it, uh, those problems that you had with the old building, how are those mitigated with the new building? Sure. So um, the uh, new library building, like the old library building, uh, the the lot falls away, so under the library space, instead of a basement, there's a parking garage. The first floor of the uh, new library building in, is one inch above, and we specifically specifically did it this way: is one inch above the le the the level of a 500 year flood in Frankfurt. So essentially. The building itself that holds everything that's important in the library, not that the parking space isn't important, uh, is, a, is above the level where any reasonably foreseeable flood will reach. So that, that was something we had to look at real hard, and the building was designed for that. The building was also designed as a library, so it's built with steel girders. I don't know if you remember, but... It looked like a skyscraper going up. It's, it, the, the superstructure of, of the library is, is steel girders, just like a, a skyscraper. So it has the load-bearing capacity. And then thirdly, because it's, it was designed as a library, we have the, the space is not only designed much more efficiently for use as a library, but um, we can move walls as needed uh, to 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 reconfigure that space. So the, those are the, the those are how we address that. I asked Mr. Overstreet to describe the old building in more detail. It's right there by the Singing Bridge. The building itself is. Um, I'm not much of an architect, so I'll, I'll defer to, to to Russ. But it's um, it it's limestone construction. It was actually built in two different parts. The back part was the was the part that we had the most trouble with the load-bearing issues of it. And so it had um, a single entrance uh, from uh, Wapping Street. Uh, you went up, uh, it was three stories tall, uh, and then it had a, a, a cupola at the top. And uh, that uh, cupola, you could actually go, you, you, you could get up to the third floor and then you would go through a trap door in, uh, in the third floor and then you would take uh, a wooden ladder 
up into the cupola. I did it one time, <laughs> and it uh, it uh, it was quite the view of, of Frankfurt. But uh, inside the building, um, you you go up the front steps, and you, the first thing you would see would be the circulation desk. Behind the circulation desk were three, no, excuse me, two offices, and they were offices that. Uh, were used to process uh, the books and uh, the circulation of the books and for staff. Over to the right uh, were a, a couple of, um, of tables for people to work, but essentially were the adult stacks, so fiction, nonfiction. And then there were books also uh, – book stacks also along the walls of that first floor. Over to the left, there was a uh, magazine, a, a small magazine room where, all, and where the magazines were kept and, and chairs for, for patrons uh, to sit while reading magazines. And then there was a, a small computer area. And then uh, uh, across from the computer area was the reference section, and that would, would have been in the back of that left-hand side as you face the library, the front of the library reference section, which, uh, of course, at that time uh, was all books, and, and now is almost entirely online. So th that's the first floor. The second floor, and then uh, there was a... Um, as you go in, like I say, there was the circulation desk. To the left of the circulation desk, but before you got to the reference area and the magazine area was a staircase. And you take the staircase up, and you get to the top of the staircase, and um, there at the top of the staircase, uh, on right-hand side was the children's room. And the... Uh, Children's room had a small activity area for kids, and, and it had this, the books and everything. Behind the children's room was was uh, uh, a, a meeting room that the board would meet in for its meetings, but were print, was principally used for uh, children's programs in the library. At, on the left-hand side were the administrative offices of uh, of the library, and that was the essentially the director and and the people who directly work for her you could get to the third floor uh there there was a staircase but it was it was locked off through uh, uh an elevator but you had to have a special key to get up there the third floor was completely i i think when the uh, federal government uh when the courts the united states district court for the eastern district of kentucky at frankfurt moved to the, the its new building it just got up and left because there were it was set up just like an office and there were desks and everything uh, up there we never used it uh, like I say because we couldn't even put uh, people up there because of of the loading issue and then and then the the trap door that I was talking about to the cupola was accessed from that third floor and can you uh, – what was the year that that build – was it 2006, 2007? When was that building retired and the new building was moved into? So we, uh, we being the library board, uh, we entered in – so we had the search process and it was it – was, it took us a year 
and we had several public meetings. We're trying to figure out two things. Number one, what was the best place for the new library? And number two, what were the people of Franklin County looking for in a new library? Um, with respect to the um, what uh, what was the best place for the new library, it became pretty clear that we needed to be downtown because the way Frankfurt is laid out along a river valley, the west side wasn't necessarily wasn't convenient to the east side and the east side wasn't convenient to the west side. but the most convenient place was in downtown. And we looked at, at a number of different locations, but the uh, most obvious location was the city parking lot right next to the library. And um, it, so in 2003, we entered into an agreement with the city of Frankfurt to um, purchase that parking lot. In return, the uh, city purchased the old library building. Uh, the uh, so the question became, uh, you know, what were the relative values of of the two pieces of property? So each so the library hired its appraiser, and the city hired its appraiser, and uh, it, we had some negotiations, and uh, uh, the library sold the building to the city. The city sold the parking lot to the the library, and the the net difference in the cost was a payment by the city to the library of about three hundred and sixty thousand dollars because an empty parking lot is not worth as much as as a as a, a lot with a building on it. So we entered into that agreement in two thousand three. The deed itself. Uh, uh, passed, so this, the library purchased the city parking lot in 2005. Uh, took about, uh, we immediately ran into some difficulties in the construction of the new building because uh, the geotechnical work that was done did not uh, discover that uh, we needed to go much deeper into the, the, the riverbank to support the building. So anyway, it, construction started in, in five, and we moved to the new building in November 2007. Uh, we leased, we, the library board, leased the old library uh, from the city because we no longer owned the building. We sold it in 2005 uh, from the city uh, for that two-year period. And uh, when we moved the city, we handed the keys over to the city, and we we, we were ready to go. The um, oh, I had questions in my head. Now they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about what the value is? So, what are the needs that the Paul Sawyer Public Library, in particular, is able to fill for the community? So, and and that's that's a really good question. So. Um, my first experience from, with the library was in uh, Lexington, and 
would have been in the late 1950s. And libraries in those days were essentially limited to the lending of books. Uh, Later on, some of the more imaginative libraries offered up uh, vinyl LPs. You, you, You could borrow those. That's not what a library does anymore. What a library does now is it's a purveyor and conveyor of informa- information to the community, community meeting the community's needs. For example, in addition to books, we have all sorts of uh, online databases that uh, persons with library cards can access for free. Uh, we and so there's just a treasure trove of, of information. We uh, we the library off, also offers, uh, and in fact this isn't uh, part of our, our mission statement. Offers all sorts of children pro children's programming because the library sees itself as a a gateway to literacy. Uh, for everyone in our community, uh, school libraries aren't what they were aren't what they were when I was growing up. Which uh, you know you you could you know you could get as many if not more book age appropriate books from from your school libraries you could get from the public library. Now the school libraries, for a lot of reasons, um, they don't offer much in the way of books, but. So we have a, a complete selection of, of children's books. We have a complete selection of, you know, uh, children's information databases, those sorts of things. But we also have all sorts of children's programming. And, uh, you know, it's a way to interest children in, in reading and in learning. And I think, uh, to me, that's the most important thing the library does. We also have also we also provide uh, space uh, for all sorts of community activities, and 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 that's important because that's the way a, a, a city becomes a community. Uh, you need a central place where people can go and meet, and so all sorts of groups meet there. You know, all sorts of governmental entities use our space, but beyond that. Um, there are book clubs. There are, um, you know, all sorts of, of uh, public, uh, you know, public spirited entities that regularly meet there, and uh, it, it's a place where people can go and and feel like that they're part of Frankfurt. I remember well, actually, um, when I was a kid and it was still in the old building, I remember how excited I always was to go to the library, oh, yeah. especially during the summer reading programs. My mom still has all of the like art that oh. we made when we would go into that. I guess that other room that I kind of remember with some sort of seating area yep. with the, and it's it's vague because I was really, I was really little at that time, but I really recall the library fondly and the rabbit that was there. Right, the rabbit rabbit was interesting. We that was sort of a um, libraries started about that time. Li- you know, one one way to make libraries children friendly and, and and children interesting was to have small small animals like rabbits. So the rabbit hopped around and 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 whatnot. And you know, all the kids loved the rabbit. Um, it, it turns out that some people are allergic to rabbit hair, and so when we um, 
moved to the new library, we found a new home for the rabbit, and the rabbit didn't go with us. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. And 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 the, if you look at our statistics, which are uh, our circulation statistics, uh, the the number of children's programs, the attendance at the children's programs, uh, and the number of items that are checked out, um, you know, that are you know, children's items, if you will, is is probably as great, if not greater, than the adult circulation. It's it, it's really an important part of of um, what makes Frankfurt uh, a great place to live. And the library is still an important part of my life as an adult. Like moving back into town as an adult, like you said before we started recording, you know, a lot of people who I knew when I was a kid growing up with have, have left town, have moved out. One of the things that allows me to continue having, you know, social experiences with people in the community is that I joined the Paul Sawyer Public Library tabletop gaming group. Right. Um, which is actually how I got in touch with uh, Cindy, who then gave my name to Diane? Yeah, Diane Dahoney. And so <laughs> and so that was how I was able to to ask around and say who who can I talk to that I could. But um the library has been super helpful for me. And I know they recently hosted those uh, Tibetan monks did right. the did right. the sand mandala there. So that was the second time we we did that. The last time they were through, but we recently acquired and it hasn't um we we've not had an opportunity uh, to implement it yet, but we recently acquired a uh, a, a mobile kitchen, if you will, um, and it, it'll be used both at the library, but also throughout the community and and among our programs. We're going to be offering our uh, you know cooking demonstrations. Everybody lo- everybody loves cooking shows, and everybody, everybody wants to learn how to cook. And so, you know, we'll be able to offer those at the farmer's market and at various places throughout the community, but we can also offer it at the library it's, itself. So that, you know, that's, that's something that's we're pretty excited about offering. That's really cool to know about. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it hadn't happened yet, but, uh, you know, we're, you know, the, 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 uh, the uh, cooking um, and, you know, the stove is, is, it's portable uh, and, but and it's, but it's still in the crate. They haven't uncrated it yet. And this might this question might be a bit of a stretch beyond kind of your expertise. But do you know what was in that location at where the city parking lot was before it was a city parking lot? Uh huh. It was um. It was a. It was a home. And it actually faced the river, and it was called uh, the terraces. And uh, I'm I'm sure the capital city history museum has has photographs of the terraces uh, but it was owned by uh, I don't know if you remember Bill May who was formerly mayor of, of Frankfurt it was owned by his his family I, I it was torn down in um, the terraces were torn down in 1955 and the city parking lot was was established at that point but before that it was it was a residence there on uh, Wapping Street, uh, and that faced the river. And so you came to Frankfurt in 1980. Correct. Um, what's kind of your background before that, and what brought you to Frankfurt specifically? Um, so I, I was born and grew up in Lexington, uh, uh, and I uh, went to uh, UK, University of Kentucky, as an undergraduate, and uh, this is probably going to hurt, 
But uh, my tuition for my first semester at UK was $102.50. Ouch! That does hurt. And I, um, you know, graduated from UK, uh, had a, a, a BA in psychology, and then I went to the University of Kentucky Law School for three years. And in my um, third year of law school, I started looking for a job. <laughs> and uh, I was offered a position with a law firm in Frankfurt, uh, which at the time was known as Stites, McElwain, and Fowler. The Fowler was Ben Fowler. Um, and uh, I, 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 took, I took the job, and uh, I had planned to move to Frankfurt anyway, but about the first two weeks of commuting com- convinced me that I wanted to move to Frankfurt much sooner than I otherwise might have. So... I uh, looked for a house and bought a house and, and have lived here, happily lived here ever since. I was married a year later and had had three kids that I raised here in Frank. My wife and I raised here in Frankfurt. A huge amount of the people I've interviewed. So I, so many people who I, you know, growing up in Frankfurt, it's, there's 27, 28,000 people here. You know, at least in passing, you know, a good quarter of the people in town. <laughs> um, but growing up here, I've, I've been interviewing a lot of people that I already have some sort of, you know, connection with, even even distant or that I that I know by name. Um, and I've been so surprised that people who I had thought had been fixtures in Frankfurt, you know, for my whole life, had come from other places. Because now so many people I know in my age group are, are going different places. And exactly. so I think of Frankfurt as a place where, you know, people are born, but then they go somewhere else. But so, I mean, I would say... Maybe only two of the 20 people I've interviewed for this podcast so far have been Frankfurt natives. Everybody else has come here from somewhere else. Most of the people that I know are uh, are not Frankfurt natives, and you're exactly right. I think when Frankfurt uh, – were the, when the major employer – and I think it's still a very important employ, employer, but when the major employer in Frankfurt – with state government, you're more likely to have, and, and people had a lifelong career in state government, uh, you're more likely to, uh, to have find people that were, you know, born, raised, and, and, and stayed, stayed here. I asked Mr. Overstreet if he had anything more he wanted to share about the library. The, the one thing I, I meant to mention um, and only barely touched on was is that I don't think... Uh, or I, I, you know, my perception, and, and it's just my perception, I could be wrong, but I don't think that the people of Frankfurt realize how supportive uh, the city, the, the, the organization that is the city of Frankfurt, and particularly the city commission, was in, um, in, in allowing the library to... Uh, to, to build it, you know, to, 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 to do the types of things that resulted in the library building the new building. Um, without the support of, of the city commission, um, that just never would have happened. And I think that, that gets overlooked. I mean, everybody's always knocking on the city commission, but the, the, the city commission really stepped up and did a great job at that, that, in, in that connection. 
That's awesome. I'll be sure to include that. Well, do, do, <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not telling you what to put in. Sure. You, you, you can take it out. You can do whatever you want. But um, I, I, I do think that's something that's kind of overlooked. Is there anything else that you think is worthwhile sharing, or an interesting anecdote, or or something that you'd want to talk about but didn't really get the chance to? Well, uh, another thing, and I had forgotten this because uh, before I came over here, I went back and looked at. Uh, some of the legal documents that I drew up in connection with the sale of the, the sale of the old library building to the city and the city's purchase of the uh, uh, or and our purchase of the city parking lot is that of of course the old library building you know it it was sat on a lot and the lot had certain boundaries and the city parking lot had certain boundaries. And in the and those boundaries were what they were, um, and um, when we started to design the new library building, so the new library building is located directly west of the old uh, post office and courthouse. Uh, the architects discovered that because of the proximity of the boundary line between uh, the former parking lot and the uh, former uh, post office and courthouse that the fire the state fire code would not allow us to have any windows on that side of the building it's just there had to be a certain separation uh, between two adjacent buildings and if that separation didn't exist, then you could have no windows. So the uh, we uh, wound up moving uh, the uh, the boundary between the uh, two lots uh, 42 inches closer to the post office, the former post office building, so that we could build windows on that side <laughs> of the of the library. And of course. Those windows are the uh, are the stained glass windows that are on the first floor. So that was pretty important, 42 inches. Can you describe the stained glass windows? Sure. Um, and also the mosaic. The mosaic that's at the back would be also interesting to hear. Yeah. So we um, um, – the stained windows, we were in the process of, of – uh, of designing uh, the, the – the, the new building, of course, there was an addition to the new building and back, but I'm talking about the original new building that was uh, opened in 2007. And uh, we were, we, the board, was approached uh, by Suzanne Gray, who, who, who's, a Frank, who's here, from here in Frankfurt and is very interested in arts. And she um, had an acquaintance. Her name was Laura Mentor, M-E-N-T-O-R, who... Um, who was a stained glass artist. And uh, Laura had done some smaller uh, stained glass projects, but Suzanne and Laura uh, thought that maybe the library would be interested in, in some of, uh, you know, of some sort of stained glass art project. And um, what she, I think what, if memory serves me right, what originally was proposed was some sort of freestanding 
stained glass sculpture or something like that. And uh, for a couple of reasons, that didn't work out. But we looked at what Laura did and uh, uh, was and were very impressed by both her artistic vision and just the quality of her work. So uh, the library itself commissioned uh, two stained glass windows and uh, and then the Friends of the Library commissioned a third one. That's the one that's up on the second floor. And uh, the uh, uh, and, and, and then in fact, when we built the new edition, we asked Laura to come back and do the one that's in the, the rear of the library. The mosaic uh, was the idea of the uh, architectural firm that we hired to do the edition. And uh, we were it's it's the Paul Sawyer Public Library, although the the legal entity is called the Franklin County Public Library District, but we operate as the Paul Sawyer Public Library. And we were trying to think of some way uh, to incorporate Paul Sawyer. and and we have some we have a lot of Paul Sawyer prints, have a couple of Paul Sawyer originals, in fact, in the library. And uh, one of the architects had seen somewhere where uh, you could have uh, you could use a mosaic uh, to rep- uh, you could s- essentially blow up a uh, a painting uh, and use and then using mosaics place it on on a building surface building wall and she suggested that we pick a Paul Sawyer painting. And and use that as the mosaic in the back, and that's that's how that came about. Among the collection of Paul Sawyer originals on display at the library, I find two to be of particular interest. One, titled "Covered Bridge in Autumn," is one of his characteristic watercolor paintings. The other, titled "Bridge Street," is one of his few etchings. They're both views of the same Frankfurt Bridge. And in both pieces, the cupola of the old federal courthouse building fades into a hazy background. If you're listening to this episode the week it airs, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Every year, the Capital City Museum puts out an ornament highlighting a special part of Frankfurt. This year's ornament features a three-quarter view of the place we explored today, the old U.S. courthouse and post office building, suspended in a golden frame. If you want a little piece of Frankfurt history on your tree, or if you want to send a bit of home to a loved one far away, you can snag an ornament by coming down to the museum at 325 Ann Street. Ornaments are $20 or free with a one-year membership to the Wilkinson Society. We'll be back in January with more on the old federal courthouse building. See you in the new year. I offer my thanks to my guests, Russ Hatter and Mark Overstreet. Thank you to the Capital City Museum for providing constant support, to the City of Frankfurt for making this production possible, and to you, listener, for sharing your time here with me. Any Old Place acknowledges the long history of life in the land we now know as Frankfurt, Kentucky, which has been home to Cherokee, Osage, Yuchi, and Shawnee peoples. Any Old Place is a production of the Capital City Museum in Frankfurt, Kentucky. To learn more about the Capital City Museum, visit CapitalCityMuseum.com or come see us in person at 325 Ann Street, Monday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. This program has been recorded, edited, and produced by me, Clay Wallace. 
I offer it to you, listener, with the belief that story grounds you in both space and time, and with the hope that it inspires you to befriend the world around you. You can find something worth tending in any old place.